to the Hope for the Animals podcast. I'm your host, Hope Bohannock, and if you're new to the podcast, welcome. You can find all our past episodes and get caught up at our website, hopefortheanimalspodcast.org, and you can find my contact information there as well. Today I'm having a conversation with Diana Oppenheim, and it's a subject that's close to home for me because it's in my area, but getting national attention, and that is the plight of the endangered Thule elk that are threatened by dairy farming and ranching that's happening on public lands here in the Bay Area. I have lived north of the San Francisco Bay Area my whole adult life, and this has been an ongoing issue, but it's really coming to a boil right now because of outspoken and brave and awesome activists like Diana demanding that we pay attention and do something about this important issue. And this this conflict touches on a number of issues that are important to me, one being the environmental impact of animal agriculture, but even farther It's also about the greenwashing of local or small-scale animal farming, which these ranchers are marketing themselves as. So there's a lot here to talk about, a lot to unpack, and we're going to get into that soon. But first, I wanted just briefly to talk to you about Facebook. So this podcast has a Facebook page that needs some love and attention. If you're a Facebook person, I would so appreciate it if you would go to our page and you just search Hope for the Animals podcast, like our page, and then go down the page and like or react to some of the posts, and then share one of the posts of a podcast, maybe one of the latest ones or one you liked, share it to a group or to your page. You know, I've been researching how to grow a podcast audience, and the thing that they keep saying over and over is that the best way is word of mouth. It's you, the the listeners and supporters of this podcast. And after 30 years of animal rights activism, I know that it's volunteers who really make a movement. So I'd love it if you could help us to reach more people, get some energy to that Facebook page by liking and sharing, and it should only take a few seconds. And then when the next episode comes out, go back and do it again and again. I'll add a link to our Facebook page in the show notes. If you're not a Facebook person, please just share this podcast however you communicate with others. And of course, giving the podcast a good rating and review if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify or other platforms, that helps so much as well. I usually give this pitch at the end, but I really want to see this podcast grow and gain more listeners. There's been some wonderful guests and such important information, and I would love to ask your help with that. So thank you so much for anything you can do to help promote this podcast. Okay, let's get into the interview on this really critical issue that touches on so much. So we're going to bring 
in our guest now. Today we have Diana Oppenheim, and she's been a lifelong environmental activist. She holds a bachelor's degree in environmental studies and economic development, and a master's degree in urban planning and policy. And she founded the Global Movement Network, which is a nonprofit that acts as a decentralizing fund funding source to indigenous frontline environmental defense activists and bridges yoga and the arts with earth warriors. And, and what we're here to talk about today is her love for Point Reyes National Seashore. She has spent three years, she spent three years working to restore this rare coastal dune ecosystem and protecting four endangered species and earned the title Volunteer of the Year in 2018. After learning about the tragic fate of the Thule elk in this area, Diana founded the grassroots campaign forelk.org to increase public participation and to save the species. So welcome to the podcast, Diana. Thank you so much, Hope. Thanks for having me. Yes. Well, I'm excited to talk to you. This is an issue that's very close to home for me because, of course, it's in the Bay Area. So it, you know, it, it means a lot to me. It's uh, close to my heart being here, but it's very important and kind of connected to a larger piece, which is around ranching and the conflict with wildlife. And so that's the larger picture, but but we're going to get there. First, I want to start, though, with your background, your vegan origin story. I'd love to know when you went vegan, why you went vegan, maybe when you got into activism. Tell us a little about you and your background. Yeah, thank you. So my background, you you touched on it with my bio. I've, I've considered myself an environmentalist pretty much my whole life. I originally went to college thinking that I wanted to be a feminist and be the head of a marketing CEO. And ultimately, mm. <laughs> I laugh at that now because I'm so different. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think what that was coming from was that I always thought differently than others around me, it seemed. Um, I always saw sort of injustices in, in the world and even just from small scale, how people treat other people, how people treat places they're from. Um, I would see poor choices people were making that caused harm in the community. I always thought differently than people. Mm. And so I wanted to be in a position where people could, would listen to me. I never felt listened to growing up. So in, in my younger years, I was in the punk scene and I was a musician and you know, I was like, I'm going to be the head of a CEO and marketing firm. So people will listen to me. Hmm. When I went to college, I took an economics course and it just didn't make any sense. You, Because what I learned was that you take natural resources and then you put them, you know, you make a product and you sell, buy and sell, and then there's the waste. And it was this linear system that inherently doesn't make sense to me. So I was like, what is, what's the natural resources? What's that? And so I, I took a natural resource economics course and that was my introduction to how humans are using the earth for their own advantage in this system that we are in. And yeah. that didn't make any sense to me. So mm. I, I inherently don't believe that we are above nature or that nature is here for human use. I inherently believe 
that we are interconnected with nature, we are part of nature. And if we exploit nature, whether it's natural resources, plants, animals, minerals, whatever it is, if we exploit ourselves, we ultimately harm ourselves. I went to Washington, D.C. to learn about federal policy. I thought, oh, I'm going to make the biggest impact. And you do that with federal policy. So I went to D.C. and I studied federal policy and I learned that, oh, a lot of this sort of federal policy work is compromised. It's very political and it, it's very, you know, for example, the Clean Water Act, to me, makes sense. You keep the water clean. But what I discovered is that a lot of the laws and legislations and interpretations are legal ways to pollute the water. And that inherently bothered me. So yeah. Okay, I don't want to do federal policy. So then I did my master's degree in urban planning and sort of local policy. And I sort of learned the same thing was happening at the local level. These policies were very easily manipulated by people who had political power and con these concentrations of power that weren't being shared. And so at that point, I just sort of, I didn't put language on this at the time, but I became a direct action activist. If I saw something that needed to get done, I did it myself. And so that sort of mentality has carried with me throughout my life. You know, I think I've always had a passion for the environment and protecting land and seeing whole ecosystems healthy and thriving. So you're an environmentalist and mostly focused on environmental studies uh, in your schooling, but you are vegan. So how, how did that connection happen? So when I started to learn about food systems and food deserts and food insecurity and study where exactly where is the food grown and where does it come from, I really became aware that there's some serious problems with our industrial food system that is having huge impacts on the environment and on human, including human health. And so I had heard about veganism, you know, I've heard about it my whole life growing up in the punk scene. And I kind of had heard that plant-based diets and vegan ways of growing food, it was just made more sense scientifically and it was less impact on the land. And, you know, I'd always kind of known that. And so I think it was a slow, steady build of my love of the environment and trying to minimize my own personal impact on the earth. I remember for years, I just, every time I ate meat or dairy, I just had this subtle, like, what am I doing? Mm. Diana, you know better. Um, but I would, I ate, you know, I was not vegan for most of my life. It was actually in Point Reyes where I had been doing a lot of restoration work and I was backpacking and camping all the time there. And I, I remember backpacking and I saw a herd of tule elk running down the cliffside. And I was just so moved by this scene. And I think having been immersed in this particular piece of land and that particular place and surrounded by the beauty and the wildlife. And I, I know that biodiversity and places that are sort of untouched by humans are decreasing and we're losing species at an unprecedented rate. And so I think being in this place that has so much biodiversity and seeing this really rare, beautiful herd of elk running down the cliffside, it just clicked. I was like, you know what? Me going vegan won't necessarily save much, but it'll make me feel better. 
Mm-hmm. And if I feel better, I can show up in my life a little more powerfully and maybe make some changes elsewhere. So mm-hmm. I was seeing this herd of tule elk running down the hill that I made my final choice and I haven't had um, any meat or animal products since. Wonderful. And of course, we kind of do have that feeling like, oh, well, I'm just one person, me going vegan, how is that going to change anything? But the influence that you can have on others and others just seeing you being vegan and being uh, the powerful environmental activist that you are, that spreads. It, it certainly inspires and spreads. So, and, and let's talk about the Thule elk. That was such a beautiful image of them running down the hill and, and I know the area so I can, you know, envision it. It's, it's a really a beautiful, incredible place, Point uh, Ray's National Seashore. So let's talk about this issue. What's going on there? And for those that aren't familiar with the Bay Area, it's just about an hour north of San Francisco on the coast. And I actually went to your website, forelk.org, and I pulled just some information about Point Reyes. And I was astounded, I didn't know this, that it's one of the most diverse spots in California, housing 15% of all California biodiversity. And it's home to over 1,500 plant and animal species, including 200 types found nowhere else in the world. And almost half of all the bird species known in the Americas are spotted in there, migrate through the park. So that's just so incredible. However, one third of the park is leased to ranchers that are breeding and killing cows for their flesh and for their milk. So (laughs) tell us about this issue. What is going on in Point Reyes? Yeah. There's so much going on. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) I'll start with a little bit of the the backstory. So, you know, as you mentioned, about a third of the park is leased to 24 private commercial cattle and dairy industries. They occupy maybe almost 30,000 acres of land. The entire peninsula is about 74,000 acres. The numbers might be a little bit off there. The policy in Point Reyes National Seashore prioritizes these 24 private leaseholders, and that is due to their political clout, the ranchers' political clout in the area. About in 2016, the National Park Service was sued by a few environmental groups. Long story short, that lawsuit required the National Park Service to update their general land management plan um, to have the very first ever environmental impact statement of the cattle ranchers on the land. And so in this lawsuit, in this environmental impact statement, they had to create a series of alternatives to study. Um, Alternatives like, we'll do nothing and just power things right now. Or, you know, what if we get rid of all the cattle industry and all the dairy industry, what would happen? And, you know, a few things in between. Mm. And so this process of creating the environmental impact statement goes through what's called a NEPA process or National Environmental Policy Act. And that's a public process. And so as this process was happening, I learned about it. And at the time I was doing my volunteer work and doing restoration work in the coastal dune ecosystems. I about, about when was this? This was for me around 2017. Okay. I was in the park quite a bit. I had been doing, I was there frequently working with park rangers, working with the endangered species and 
I sort of learned, I learned that the park service was going to kill the tule elk. I thought, what? No, why would they do that? I'm the tule elk are, they were just, they're recovering from ex- near extinction. Mm. The tule elk were almost extinct in the late 1800s. They were down to about 12 individual elk. The tule elk are endemic to California, found nowhere else in the world. There, it's been a huge successful conservation story in California because um, they went from 12 individuals and through conservation work, they're now up to about 5,000 statewide, which mm. is 1% of their original population. So in some sense, they're doing a lot better, but they're, they're not doing great. They were reintroduced to Point Reyes in the 1970s. And they were reintroduced into Point Reyes because it's their native habitat and it's a national park where it's some of the most protected lands in the world. There's about 600 or so tule elk total in the park between three separate herds. So there's not too many elk in the park. Meanwhile, there's about 6,000 cows. Wow. So it's about a 10 to 1 ratio of cows to these native wild elk. Did you say 10 to 1 ratio? Yes. Yeah. There's 10 times more cows than there are tule elk in the park. There are more cows in the park than there are tule elk in the world, right? So just for reference, um, this is a very rare breed of elk. It's a subspecies found nowhere else. So I heard that the park service is going to kill the tule elk. And I just was like, that makes no sense. You know, the park service loves its wildlife. All the rangers I've met, they're there because they love Point Reyes and they love the wilderness and we're protecting endangered species and restoring land like that. It just made no sense. But I looked into it and lo and behold, they weren't going to shoot the tule elk yet, but there was a plan on the table and this huge push from the ranching community to kill the tule elk. And that's where I learned about this NEPA process and the general land management plan update. And it had just been starting and it's a public process. So I figured, well, if the public actually knew what was on the table, that the park wanted to kill the elk for the ranchers, and the public has a say in this because it's a legal requirement that the public is involved in this decision-making process, I could make some change. All that needs to happen is people need to hear about it. And so that's when I founded forelk.org. It's been several years of going through this NEPA process and the environmental impact statement and we're nearing the tail end, and it's been a huge push to educate people. We are not just getting the issue out in the mainstream, but it's also sort of going against this. There's a very huge local culture, as you know, Hope, Mm. in Marin County in particular, and in Northern California of the local food system, eat local, sort of glorifying small ranches. Yeah. And so not only do, do I have to educate people on what's happening specifically in Point Reyes, but sort of help reframe how to think and see about agriculture practices? So that's been like a huge hurdle, but mm. we've made a ton of success because if you just look at the science and the facts, like if you can somehow get, you know, sort of take away your, like how we've maybe perceived the small family rancher, like and just look at the science and look at the facts and look at what's actually happening it's very obvious. And so I've just had a very science-based approach tied with my passion for the subject. But if you just look at the facts, it's, it's easy for people to come on our side and to make the push. And in fact, I'm happy to say that opposition of ranching in the park is at 99%. So, and that comes from the last, there was a California Coastal Commission meeting that happened 
um, the California Coastal Commission has to issue, a, they have to say, oh, this park's plan that is moving forwards is compliant with the California Coastal Act. And so they had to issue a, con a compliance letter to the National Park Service. That was another public process and about 45,000 comments were submitted to the Coastal Commission. 99% of those comments opposed ranching and seashore. So wow. we have a lot of support. Mm. Sadly, the park is still moving forwards with their preferred alternative. The preferred alternative will expand ranching in the seashore. Oh. It will allow the killing of the native tule elk, the free roaming herds. So they cap the tule elk population at 120 animals. Oh. So when the herd goes above that number, the elk will be shot. Wow. And I think the other key piece of this amendment is that they are going to be handing over unprecedented 20-year leases to the ranchers. So oh, basically no. cementing ranching in to the national park on our public lands for the next 20 years, despite wow. documented environmental impacts, despite killing of a native species who's just back from the brink of extinction, despite just egregious water quality pollution. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to ask about that. And, and actually, you know, you said something about uh, the local ethos in the area in Marin County, Sonoma County, north of San Francisco, around the local ranching and farming uh, of animals. And it is really amazing the shift that we've seen in the last, you know, 15, 20 years. I actually went to the Sebastopol Farmers Market recently. Sebastopol's just north of the Point Reyes uh, National Seashore that we're talking about up in Sonoma County. And I remember going to that. 20, 30 years ago, and it was basically vegan. It was, you know, just produce and, you know, maybe a couple options of, of uh, some eggs or something like that. But now it was almost half meat. I couldn't believe it. It's all this local meat and they had sausage and grass-fed beef. And I was just shocked, honestly, at how much local meat was being sold and so, yeah, it, there's really this ethos of these farmers being protective of the land and, you know, that they're the, the doing, it, doing it right and not factory farming or whatever. So that's a huge hurdle. But what people don't realize is the science. Like you were saying, the damage is extensive. What's happening from the ranching, from the cows in Point Reyes is really extensive. And, I, and I'd love you to talk a little about that and just what's happening to the area, the pollution. Uh, and of course, and I just want to say too, that it is of course not the cow's faults. Not, we, you know, when we start talking environmentally and talking about the cows doing all this damage, it's not the cows, it's the people that put them there. <laughs> um, and they are just the victims as well. So just want to point that out, but their presence there is certainly damaging. So um, if you want to talk a little about that. So in Point Reyes, there's 24 private industrial ranches. I'll just say too, these ranches are sort of seen or talked about as small, quaint family farms. They, they're multi-generational farms. And a lot of the farms have been there since the mid-1800s. And so they are multi-generational farms. Um, but they're certainly not small and they're certainly not historic. They are uh, in modern buildings with modern facilities. They also are now, they sold their land to the National Park in the 1960s. 
Um, originally, they were they sold the land and it was gonna be, after 25 years, be returned to the National Park. There was an amendment in the 70s that then allowed them to continue and be, have rubber stamped leases, you know, five or 10 year leases. So they're just sort of rubber stamped and they allowed to continue operations. Mm. But in the National Park, they are also held to a higher environmental standard because they're in public lands and some of the most protected lands in the world. And they're supposed to be this model of coexistence between ranching and wildlife. And so these are the farms that are supposed to be the model for happy farms and environmentally friendly and environmental stewardship. If you go down to these farms and you see they all have signs that says dairy of the year and environmentally certified there are, when they sell their local cheeses, it's, you know, with all this pride of like, you know, this was made locally with high environmental standards. These ranchers have been on the land for generations. They care about the land. And, and I do ultimately think after hearing and talking to some of the ranchers, they believe they are doing a really good job. They know they could be doing better, but they really do believe that they are stewards of the land. However, if you look at what's actually happening, that's, it's just simply not true. So even with these best high-end, best management practices for these ranchers, there's this slew of documented damage to the land. So I'll just go through a couple highlights of what those are. Yeah. I think the most egregious and contentious is the water quality. So since there are about 6,000 cows permitted to be on the land, they all poop. And that poop has to go somewhere. And a lot of it, so the park has um, constructed poop ponds to store a lot of the manure. And big trucks will come up and pump the sewage out and spray it all over the land. And this is untreated. And it goes directly into the streams, creeks, and tributaries in Point Reyes in some of the most um, protected marine ecosystems in the world where species like the endangered coho salmon live. And the elephant seals play. And so that is like one example of like the ranchers are not taking care of the land. (laughs) And in fact, they're poisoning the water. There's also been, you know, we're in a state drought right now. It's a drought emergency. Water tables are dropping um, to very dangerous levels. There are certain ranches who are permitted to pump groundwater from sensitive wetland areas without permits. Um, to continue running their operations. So that's happening in Point Reyes. Greenhouse gases, gas emissions. The ranches in Point Reyes National Seashore are the highest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the park. They contribute over 60% of the greenhouse gas emissions in Point Reyes. And then on top of that, you know, I think to me, one of the most egregious things is just if you look at the land, this is a national park where invasive species, like that's a huge concern in environmental movements. Well, if you look at the pastoral lands, it is a monoculture. There, well, there's maybe four or five different annual grasses that are planted for the grazing of these cattle. So you go through and 30% of this land is four or five invasive grasses and that's it. It looks like kind of like a golf course. And that grass is then overgrazed by these 6,000 cattle. It's not even enough for the cows. So the ranchers still have to truck in hay and supplemental feed from the Central Valley. And so you have about 30,000 acres of invasive species that are overgrazed and overtrampled. And the soil quality is so poor because the root systems of these grasses are so short. And then the cows are very heavy and they compact the soil. And then it basically turns to dust 
And so when any rainstorm happens, it just all that sediment goes into the, the creeks and the streams, along with all the manure that's been sprayed on the land. And there's also the fencing issue and, and the elk not being able to get to water sources. So that's another big issue. And I think there was a, a win recently about that. Do you want to talk about that? Yes. So in Point Reyes, there are three herds of tule elk. Two are free roaming. The free roaming herds are the ones that are in danger of being shot by the National Park Service. The largest herd of tule elk in the world is actually in Tamales Point, and they're trapped behind an eight-foot fence. So it's a large peninsula on the west side is the Pacific Ocean. On the east side is Tamales Bay. It's about a 2,000-acre peninsula, and they're combined by an eight-foot fence, so they can't leave the peninsula. The peninsula is does not have adequate food or water sources for the elk. And so because they can't roam free to find adequate forage and water, there has been huge negative impacts on them, including the most recent, this past year, uh, sadly and tragically, a mass die-off happened. Hmm. So last summer, due to some amazing on-the-ground conservationists and photographers who know that peninsula in and out, they started to see warning signs of a mass die-off. They started to see water sources drying up. They started to see irregular behaviors of elk. They started to see an unusual amount of dead elk in the reserve. You know, wildlife die, that is a normal thing. And everybody dies. But we were seeing an irregular and high number of deaths. And so we started to bring all this to the park service, like, hey, water sources are dried up. Here's some irregular behavior. Here's some photographic evidence of what's happening. Like, you know, you need to implement this contingency plan that's in your policy that says if there's inadequate water, we'll provide water to the elk. So we were asking the National Park Service to implement their own contingency plan to provide water to these trapped, confined animals. And for a year, they dismissed us. We hosted multiple protests. We consulted and tried to work with the Park Service on all different angles. And sadly, they did not listen to us. And when the census count came back in, their population plummeted from 493 to 296. Hmm. So it was about a third of the herd died. Wow. Um, which just broke so many hearts. Yeah. And that fueled us even more to keep pushing for change. I just want to clarify really quick. So the the fence is because of the ranching, because of the cows, it's keeping the cows in. Is that correct? Absolutely. So I just want to clarify that. Yeah. Thanks for that really important point. The only reason why they're fenced in is because the ranchers don't want the elk roaming onto their land. And so the original introduction point of the elk into Point Reyes was Tamales Point um, and they were fenced in there. Since then, they've, you know, two free roaming herds have formed within the park, which is good, but that also has the other conflicts. But the only reason why the Tamales Point is fenced in is to prevent the largest herd from eating the grass that is leased to the farmers. Terrible. But the elk did get some water recently, right? There was some relief water brought in uh, just recently, correct? Yes. So the Park Service just announced maybe last week, or no more than two weeks ago that they, that they agreed the water levels were low and they would supply, they would implement their contingency plan. And they brought in three troughs, um, gravity fed by 2000 gallon tank of water. And there will be water provided to some of the elk until the rains come. Mm. So that is a huge win. 
And I think it is, you know, directly tied to the public pressure campaign that we implemented over the past year with the protests and local and national media coverage. So I'm really happy and proud of everybody's work. It's a small step in the right direction. Um, ultimately, we want the park service to take the fence down. Yeah. Um, I don't think it's fair or right at all to have native elk trapped in a fence. A national park is not a zoo. So I think the fence should come down. The elk should be able to free roam and forage for their food and water themselves. Then we don't even have to supply water, right? It's just right. Put the fence down and the animals know how to live. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it seems that the water, you know, giving them water finally is just kind of a Band-Aid. Uh, and the the true issue is these ranches being there and the fencing, yeah. And it's a necessary Band-Aid. I mean, I was so relieved to hear that the Park Service was supplying water. Because sure. as I mentioned, activists did come in and bring water to the elk, but we can only do so much. Yeah. You know, like we couldn't supply water to the whole herds. The Park Service isn't even supplying water to the, all the herds. So it's only the southern side of the peninsula, the northern, the elk that stay more on the northern tip are still sort of like, they don't come into range of the water. Um, it's an imperfect step, but it, it will relieve some suffering of some of the animals. And I'm so grateful to that. And we will keep pushing until we can get the fence down and let these animals roam free as they should be. Good. Wonderful work. Thank you so much for that. So I want to back up or kind of back out and look at a bigger picture it's really, it's just amazing to me that the solution that is being proposed by so many environmentalists and food activists and kind of local foodie type uh, environmentalists, they're suggesting that, you know, when it comes to food and climate change and the impact of agriculture, they're talking about regenerative grazing so much. I mean, it's just the buzz, the buzz now that you hear about regenerative grazing and rotational grazing and basically getting the farmed animals out of the buildings and onto land, acreage. But as we're seeing played out here, this is just, it's a disaster for wild areas and the wildlife and open spaces. It's, it's not what we need more of. And that's what's being proposed for like the upcoming farm bill. The buzz is that re re rotational and regenerative grazing is going to be a big part of the upcoming farm bill. Like it's going to get a lot of funding. And it's just so frustrating because it, it's not the direction we need to be moving in. So what is your take on the popularity of regenerative animal agriculture? So my friend Jack Kashite of Tree Spirit Project said it so perfectly that regenerative grazing is the equivalent of saying clean coal. Yeah. The industry of industrial animal agriculture is a bad idea for biodiversity. It's a bad idea for a resiliency of the climate. It's a bad idea for land use. At this scale to have just better practices in the animals out on the land, like that's it's actually not better. When I was in school for environmental studies, you know, I learned about this very simple concept called point source pollution and non-point source pollution. And point source pollution is easy to grasp. It's when you see a pipe just with dirty polluted water going straight into the ocean, you can point to it and say, that's where the pollution is coming from. Let's fix that. 
So it's easier to get on board. It's tangible. You can see it. You can point to it. That's a bad thing. Non-point source pollution is a lot more difficult because you can't point to it. So a common example is in the suburbs, every house has a lawn and every house sprays chemicals on their lawn. And then when the rain comes, all those chemicals get put into the, into the waterways. Well, the water is polluted, but you can't really point to one spot and say that's where it comes from. So it's a lot more difficult to understand and a lot more difficult to come up with solutions. So I consider regenerative grazing and sort of like grass-fed animal agriculture in this sort of non, non-point source pollution category, because you can't point to just one ranch and say, this is the problem. It's the how, like about 40% of the land is being used for animal agriculture. And that includes the feed to grow, to feed the animals. So even in Point Reyes, for example, the animals are out on the land, they're eating the grass, but in this label of grass fed, they only have to graze a certain percentage of food on the land to be considered grass fed. The rest of it can be shipped in. So, you know, there's still all this extra inputs of, of feed that has to be grown and trucked in to feed these animals, even on these grass fed ranches. And more water and more land. Yeah. Yes. The water use of the animals, not just for drinking, but for cleaning of the pens and all this stuff. It's an enormous amount of water use. It's the highest amount of water use of all the industries in California. And then on top of that, you have the conflict with wildlife. So if all these animals go out into open space and grass fed, huge scale um, land use, well, where's the wildlife going to go? Yeah, exactly. Where's the wildlife going to go? And I'm going to tell you, they're going to go onto the land because that's their home too, the wildlife's home. And when wildlife comes onto these areas, they get shot. There's a whole branch, as I'm sure you know, the whole there's a whole branch of the government called Wildlife Services. Yes. That are called in to kill wildlife at the pest of ranchers. So they don't affect ranching profits. And so wildlife gets killed. Yeah. And it's happening in Point Reyes. It's happening all over. It's being funded by our tax dollars. So I don't think grass-fed beef or regenerative grazing is a solution, I think it's going to take up a lot more land and land is very precious. So I think we need to find a better solution. And I would say that the solution is plant farming, transitioning uh, these ranchers uh, and animal ag to plant farming, regenerative, organic, uh, sustainable plant farming. And then we would reduce these inputs, reduce the water use, reduce the land use, it, it's certainly a solution, uh, a huge solution, just uh, transitioning farmers to plant farming. So it's unfortunately common, really, for environmentalists and animal activists to be at odds. And generally, because environmentalists will sometimes see the killing of a group of animals as beneficial to an ecosystem or an environment or manipulating animals in some way. And of course, as animal rights people, or I would say that we see this as unacceptable and each individual animal is worthy of respect and their own agency and their right to live out their lives in peace. I, I, I will just, I'll just say, I think it's just taking the easy way out by killing some to save others. It's a lack of creativity and imagination. I mean, there's 
always a better solution where everyone can live. Uh, we just need to find it. But anyway, that, you know, it's, it's this conflict between these two communities that is ongoing. But this particular issue, the Thule elk issue, is one where the two communities have really come together. And we're seeing environmentalists and animal activists standing side by side at the protests, which really warms my heart. So can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think you spoke to it beautifully, you know, environmentalists and animal activists don't always get along. And I, I actually, part of me understands why and part of me doesn't understand why. I think that this campaign with the Tule Elk, it speaks to so many people for so many different reasons. And it's been a huge bridge builder, which has been a huge learning curve for me and a really amazing journey because I've, you know, I am vegan. To me, this is a vegan issue, but I intentionally didn't run the For Elk campaign as a vegan issue because I knew I would maybe lose some people. <laughs> Everybody is going to get on board of this issue. So if you want clean water, you can fight to help phase out the ranching and save the elk. If you care about pub, you know, public lands and what are, what's the purpose of a national park, you have a stake in this issue. If you care about the lives of the Thule elk, of course, you're going to care about this issue. If you care about indigenous rights, you know, the Coast Miwok tribe has come out against ranching in the seashore because it's their historic site and the cows actually trample on a lot of their historic sites. Even hunters actually have supported this campaign. And so I've had to sort of be this steady point where I get to hear from so many people who think so differently than me and all sort of agree that, wow, what's happening in this peninsula is just doesn't make sense. And there's clearly a better way. Well, not everybody agrees with every piece of it. We've all sort of agreed that the land is going to be better without commercial ranching and to actually like expand and thrive or help thrive the Thule elk population. And so to me, that's been like a really amazing and beautiful thing because I don't expect anyone to think like me. Um, I've felt like I thought differently for most people my whole life. I think differently for my family and I love my family. I think differently than my best friend and my partner and I love my best friend and my partner. Getting along and building something that is beautiful and that's just and that's healthy and that's in my opinion like a world that I would want to live in it includes people with a diverse perspective all fighting for a better way and that's what I've really found in this campaign is people who think all across the board fighting for a better way so it's been really positive and I really am inspired and I, I hope more campaigns and fights sort of include this very intersectional union to you know it's like that's true people power yeah that's true people power to me it's like when you can really be bipartisan you don't compromise your values or your morals i have not compromised a, a cent on my own moral and like my own belief systems but i'm still working with people who think differently than me and to me that's positive so yeah. i hope it inspires others to work together and and truly be collaborative because you can do a lot more together yeah, yeah, it's wonderful to see. 
So Diana, you are just about to go on a road trip to Washington, D.C. to speak on behalf of the Thule Elk and the Point Reyes National Seashore. And by the time people hear this, it's going to be just after you speak, I believe. So it's all happening right now. So tell us about this trip and what it is that you hope to accomplish. Yeah, so I have started a petition. Uh, I started it when I started for Elk and there's, we have about 68,000 signatures on the petition. I'll also be working with Resource Renewal Institute and taking their petition and Turtle Island Restoration Network and I'll have their petition. So I'm delivering petitions to the Secretary of the Interior. There is, as I mentioned, the the final plan could be signed any day. There's a court order date by July 14th where the plan has to be um, finished. Everybody's on deck trying to prevent this plan from being signed. And, and this is this is the one where they would solidify 20 more years of the same thing, and right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the court order date is July 14th to sign this plan, the plan that would have 20-year leases to the ranchers that would allow the killing of the Thule elk. Mm, right. So time is running out. The only person with the authority to dismiss the plan is the Secretary of the Interior, Deb Holland. I've tried to get a meeting with Deb Holland or her staff unsuccessfully. I think with the urgency of the timeline, I am willing to take a few days. Me and my partner will be driving to DC. Um, we'll be documenting the whole thing and doing a Facebook live as I hand in the petition, but I will go to her office and hopefully talk to her staff and hand in the petition and try to give it my all to just show how many people care about this issue. And I know that the agriculture industry is lobbying and there's a lot of political power that that industry has. This whole plan has been fast-tracked by the Trump administration. Um, there's just a lot of power to privatize public land, and that's a trend that we're battling against. So I'm hoping that by making this trip and a dramatic effort and having this petition from a coalition of a very diverse group of people, very sound in science, and also with a lot of heart, that it will inspire Deb Holland and her office to, to dismiss the plan. And what we want Deb Holland to do is dismiss the current plan, and we want her to choose alternative F, which is the alternative that would phase out commercial ranching in the seashore, restore the land and restore the coastal prairies um, as was originally intended. And that would actually line up with the law. Right? I'll just read the law of what a national park is. It says, these amendments may allow National Park Service to lease agricultural land so long as they do not impede the secretary's ability to conserve the scenery and the natural and historic objects and the wildlife therein and to provide for the enjoyment of the same in such manner and by such means as will leave them unimpaired for the enjoyment of future generations. That's the law. So we have the science and the public understands the science behind it. Um, the only alternative that is up for debate that would implement this law is the alternative where commercial ranching is phased out and we actually restore the prairies and save and protect the tule elk. We yeah. hope that the secretary will hear us and make it happen. Well, it sounds like that law is is obviously being violated. Uh, so hopefully she will hear you. Is there a way that our listeners could maybe call or contact her office in this time period? Are you going to have that on your website? 
Yes. Yeah. So I will have just come back from DC turning in this petition. I think there's a huge push for individuals to call and write the secretary and say, hey, support that petition. Please choose alternative F. I will have all that information up of how to contact the secretary of the interior's office and, you know, and the same stuff, use your social media, share it, um, write letters to the editor. I'll have all sorts of information on my website so that people can share their voice in this and and just get loud. <laughs> Great. Well, I will put that information in the show notes. I encourage everybody to uh, take some action for the Thule Elk. And uh, and Diana, it's it's really been wonderful talking to you. We, we probably should wrap up, but I wanted to ask you a final question. What gives you hope for the future? Wow. You know, I think the hope for me I do feel hope, for example, when I see animals thriving in their natural environments. I feel hope when, you know, I can talk to somebody who thinks very differently than me and we can find common ground and move forward together, um, fighting for something that we both believe in. I feel hope when people go out of their way to learn something new or be open in their perspectives um, and hearing a a different angle of something and and really listening, you know, with, with an open mind, that gives me so much hope. I feel hope when people do whatever they can in small ways, you know, like every interaction we have has impact. So, you know, you reaching out to me to do this podcast and wanting to share the story gives me hope. When you start to do the work that matters to you, you see how many other people are working so hard every day to get this work done. So I just try to focus on that. Wonderful. Wonderful. Well, Diana, it was really great talking to you. Thank you so much for all your amazing work for all the wildlife of uh, the coastal areas of California and, uh, and the Thule elk in particular. Thank you so much for being on today. Thank you so much, Hope. Thank you for listening to the Hope for the Animals podcast. You can go to the Save the Thule Elk Facebook page and watch the video from the live streaming of Diana presenting the petitions in Washington, D.C. And please contact the offices of those decision makers and the website forelk.org will have the details on how you can do that. That'll be in our show notes. And while you're in Facebook, I'll just ask again to please go to the Hope for the Animals podcast page and like and share and give and spread some love to that page. I really appreciate it and I appreciate you and your support for this podcast. For the wild places and for wildlife, live vegan. (laughs) 